0: We're in a five-week series, and uh, we're almost done. We're we're in week four, uh, and the whole series is what does Jesus say? We're talking about some very difficult and controversial topics, homosexuality and transgender, and just all the things related to that that are going on in our society today. So. Parents, uh, I just want to give you opportunity, like I have every week, if you have young children in the room, it's your discretion, uh, because we're going to be talking about sexuality and and some some sensitive topics today. It's up to you. And I've been telling you, my opinion is that the the younger they hear it, the better, because they're definitely hearing it everywhere else in society. They might as well hear God's truth on the the topic uh, from the church. So Uh, We've been emphasizing that we need to get this right theologically and relationally. And let's admit, this is so hard. I've I've read at least 10 books on on these topics and studied scripture and look at the commentaries on all the different passages. and, And let's admit, this is hard to get this right not only theologically, but also relationally, because there's so many situations and questions. Well, What about this? And what about that? And if this and, and if that. And, and our, our tendency is to just go to extremes, because as we try to lean into the complexity of it all, it, it, it's we, we kind of get overwhelmed and we want simplicity. And so it, it's more it's simpler to just go to one extreme or the other. And so so what we do, for example, one extreme is is to distort the Bible's idea of love. And so we say, well, if you're going to love people, you know, Jesus said love people, right? So you know, if you're going to love people, then you have to affirm gay behavior. You have to affirm homosexual practice. If you love people, well, well then of course you, you will agree with them and affirm them and celebrate everything they do. And when you do that, you're actually distorting what the Bible has to say about love. The other extreme is to to distort the Bible's idea of holiness. You say, well, if you're going to be holy, if you're going to be a real follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to separate. You even maybe have to denigrate and disparage people. So you sit yourself up on your holy hill and you look down on those people. And in that case, you're distorting what holiness actually is. So it, it, this is hard, and, it, and it's easy to run to the extremes. It's hard to do what Jesus actually did. You look at Jesus, read through the Gospels. What did Jesus do? He was completely loving and completely holy. Holy. Jesus was full of grace and truth, 100% grace, 100% truth. Jesus never sacrificed grace, and he never sacrificed truth. He did both, 100% all the time. And man, that is hard to do. Jesus could do it because he was the perfect son of God. He was sinless. But you and I, sinful people that we are, we, we it's hard for us sinners to to get this right. And so we're tempted to run to one extreme or the other, but we have to try. We have to try as followers of Jesus how to how to get this right theologically and relationally. So Romans 1. Turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. I hope you've heard my first 3 messages because we've talked about sexuality and marriage, and gender, and really you have to talk about those things before you even talk about homosexuality, because before you can talk about homosexuality, you have to first talk about sexuality. What is sexuality? What is gender? What what is all of that? Uh, The sermons are online if you want. Uh, By the way, we've recently added uh, the sermons uh, to iTunes and to Spotify. So depending if you have an Android or an iPhone, uh, you can use those apps. And just type in Clarkston Community Church, they'll all come up, and they—they it's really quick, really easy. uh, iTunes or Spotify. So just be aware of that. In fact, I think it's actually easier than like going to our website or whatever. So uh, today, let's talk directly about homosexuality. We're going to look especially at Romans chapter one. We're going to make some observations about homosexuality, and then we're going to ask some questions that people frequently ask today, and I can tell you right up front, there's no way we can get to all the questions, so we're going to save some of the uh, many questions that we have, the real applicable questions like, what do you do in this scenario, what do you do in that scenario, how do you relate to this or that, we're going to save some of that for, for next time, okay, so, so we're going to get as far as we can here, and, and I, I want to say right up front, as I've been saying in every message, maybe you're here today, and you were gay. Maybe you're sitting here right now, and you're struggling even, maybe with the same-sex attraction. And I just want you to know, I I, I am trying hard to get this right theologically and relationally. On the one hand, I want to speak truth, and I want to follow scripture, and I want to be like Jesus and say what Jesus says, but I also want to get this right relationally like Jesus did Jesus told us to love one another as as ourselves. So we have to show love and respect and kindness to everyone. So if you are gay or transgendered and you're here this morning, you're thinking, "Uh oh, he's going to bash me. He's going to be mean to me. I want you to feel safe here. Okay, no gay bashing here. No throwing stones here. We're all in this together. We are all sinners. We all have stuff in our lives. We all have things in our lives. We all need God's grace. So we're all in this together just trying to follow Jesus. Okay? So now if you are really thinking, anybody really thinking? Or you just kind of half sleep out there? If you're really thinking, and if you're really tracking with me, you might already be asking, Greg, why are we turning to Romans 1? I thought the whole series is, you know, what does Jesus say? So why are we turning to Romans 1, which is written by the Apostle Paul? And why aren't we turning to the Gospels where we actually look at something Jesus actually says? See, you're so smart. See, I knew, I knew you were thinking that because you're, you're thinking people. So, and it's a valid question. Did Jesus say anything, really, about homosexuality? I, I was watching some of the Democratic presidential, de- uh, presidential debates uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the candidates is, is Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, and if you've been following much of what's going on, you know that he professes faith in Jesus. And, 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 and he, he is gay and he's married to a man. And he said something like, why do conservative Christians make such a big deal about homosexuality and gay marriage? When Jesus never said a thing about it. Jesus talked a lot about helping the poor. And caring for the oppressed and the downtrodden. And he didn't even talk about homosexuality. Why do these conservative Christians, why are they so hung up on this? And as, as I listened, I thought, wow. Is that true? Did Jesus never really say a thing about homosexuality? Well, you know what? Technically speaking, Mayor Pete is right. You cannot find any verse where Jesus uses the words homosexual. Or gay marriage. But as I reflected on that, it is so misleading. Remember last time we looked at Mark chapter 10 where Jesus talked about marriage and divorce. Remember, what did Jesus say? He said in Mark chapter 10 and also the parallels in Matthew and Luke. He says, but at the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what uh, God has put together, let man not separate. So when you look at this passage and when you look elsewhere in the Gospels, whenever Jesus talked about marriage and sexuality, he always affirmed God's created order. At the beginning, God made them male and female. We are created and designed, male and female. We are literally made for each other. This is God's creation. It's it's part of structured right in it's part of the DNA, right? Wired right into the fabric of reality. This is who we are, who God created us to be. So Jesus is very clear on this. You know, I, I started thinking about this. Even if there were no verses in the Bible not one, not anywhere in the Bible that mentioned homosexuality, this would still be clear. Because the entire worldview that Scripture paints for us is very clear. We are created in the image of God, male and female. He created them. So remember, marriage is designed to be exclusive, permanent, monogamous, and complementary. That was the message last week. Jesus said, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, They'll become one flesh. Exclusively. When you say yes to that one other, you are saying no to everybody else. But it's permanent. What God has joined together. No one, let no one separate. It's to be monogamous. They, they will be united to one another and become one flesh. Mono one. You don't become united to two others, three others, four others, ten others. No, one. And it's also complementary, male and female. It's incredible when you just look at the biological design of male and female, how we are made for one another, we complement one another, and we come together and we could create new life. So, sorry, Mayor Pete, that, that argument just doesn't hold water. I want to quote the, the words of New Testament scholar Robert Gagnon. He says, The idea that Jesus was or might have been personally neutral or even affirming of homosexual conduct, is revisionist history at its worst. The portrayal of Jesus as a first-century Palestinian Jew who was open to homosexual practice is simply ahistorical. All the evidence leads in the opposite direction. He also did not address other sexual issues such as incest and bestiality, but that hardly indicates a neutral or positive stance on such matters. Jesus, both in what he says and what he fails to say, remains squarely on the side of those who reject homosexual practice. Okay? So, now, I was tempted to really get off on this, and it would take another whole message because uh, just a little bit here. We could talk about how all Scripture is inspired by God. You cannot pit Jesus against Paul or, or John or Peter. You can't say, well, you know, I know Paul said that or Peter or John said that. But but, you know, since Jesus didn't talk about it, then we don't have to listen to those guys because I just follow Jesus. No, you you know, some people try to be these red letter Christians, you know, red letter, the, the words of Jesus in some Bibles are put in red, you know. That's very problematic at a variety of levels. You know, say, well, I'm just going to follow the red letters of the Bible and and not the rest of it. But but it really shows a poor understanding of, of what Scripture is, how it's all inspired of God, because Jesus, in a very real sense, is Lord of all the word. So you, you, can't, you can't pit one against the other. So we, we, could, we could go for a ways on that, but let's move on. If you took an outline this morning, or maybe we'll just put it up on the screen as well. There are several biblical references specifically to homosexuality. And we don't have time to, to to dive into these other passages. But just so you know, maybe you want to read them on your own sometime. But in Genesis 19, there's Sodom and Gomorrah. There's Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, there's the, the story there in Genesis 19. In Judges 19, there's the Levite and his concubine in, in Gibeah. Uh, that, that's, that's a nasty story back, back there in Judges 19. And then in Leviticus, uh, the book of Leviticus, there, there's the Levit, what's called the Levitical text, where, where Moses talks about how it's, it's an abomination for a man to lie with a man as he would with a woman. And, and then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, there are three cases in Romans, and 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Timothy, where the Apostle Paul addresses homosexuality. And actually, there's a few more back in the Old Testament when it talks about prostitutes at the pagan temples, because homosexuality was quite common and and even a part of the pagan religions at that time. But uh, let's read Romans 1, uh, 18 through 32, and and I want to unpack it just a little bit and uh, then... uh, We'll answer some questions. So Romans chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 18. Okay? And by the way, the the reason Paul addresses uh, homosexuality even three times, and Jesus doesn't, is because in the Jewish culture, which Jesus was ministering to, it was not even a question. It wasn't up for debate. Everybody knew that it was not a God-approved uh, lifestyle. And so it wasn't even up for discussion. Maybe like, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 years ago in the United States, it wasn't a matter of discussion, was it? You didn't even have to really talk about it. But now it is, and so we have to talk about it. So kind of like Jesus didn't have to talk about it, but Paul had to talk about it because when he took the gospel over to Greece and over to Rome and out into the rest of the Roman Empire, it was an issue out there. So Paul had to, had to bring it up there. are without excuse. So notice what he's saying here. Remember, I've told you many times the, the biblical worldview is creation, fall, redemption in Christ, and then restoration when Jesus comes again. So we're all created by God in the image of God. Creation's good and beautiful, but we're also fallen, broken, sinful, messed up. But Jesus came to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us, and we can have a measure of healing and wholeness now, but then once it, when Jesus comes and history ends, uh, then we'll be totally restored and renewed. And, and so here he, here's Paul saying, you know, we're, we're created by God, and, and, and this is plain to us, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So really, no one really has an excuse. If you just look at the world, and you see the, the incredible order and beauty and design, and you look even within, and there's this moral law within. Where does all this come from? People are without excuse, really. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. So they're rejecting God. Okay, They don't, they don't want to thank God. They don't want to believe in Him. And, they're, and, and in their thinking, they, they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it affects your mind. It affects your heart. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Now, three times here he uses the word exchanged. So follow it along here. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and reptiles and, and animals. So he's talking about idolatry here. Rather than worshiping the one true God, they they they. Turn their backs on the one true God and instead they make these idols and they, they make up their own religion and they, they worship things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart. And this, this phrase, God gave them over, also occurs three times. So, look for the three occurrences of exchanged and the three occurrences of God gave them over, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Everybody good and depressed now? Wow. Let's unpack this passage a little bit. Let's talk about. The gospel and and homosexuality, because you have to realize here what 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 the context is in, in Romans chapter one, the, 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 the whole the whole letter of the apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. It's about the gospel, and gospel literally means good news. Well, this doesn't sound like good news, right there, does it? But, but you see, you have to understand the bad news in order to get the good news. So, so look at the context, the whole context of he, what he's talking about. Homosexuality is an illustration here, and we'll get to that. But the context here is the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, if you look at the verses right before this in verses 16 and 17, in fact, let, let's just go ahead and read it. Let's just go back up to verses 16 and 17. Paul says in verse 16, Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Okay, so he's talking about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, the good news, and how it's available to the Jewish people and to the non-Jewish people, Gentiles, like you and me. Verse 17, for in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So what is the gospel? It's the, it's the power of God. It's a power of salvation for everyone who believes. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about what he's done for us to save us. It's about his righteousness and how you and I can be made right with him through faith and In Jesus, this is what the gospel is. So if you look at the flow of the letter of Romans, in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is making the point that we are all sinners. And just when the Jewish people who were hearing or reading this letter, imagine how they felt reading Romans 1. Yeah, Paul, you tell them. You tell them. You tell those Gentiles what kind of sinners they are. Yeah, you go for it, Paul, because this was a classic you know, the Jewish people up on their holy hill looking down at those Gentiles and those sinners and and all the bad things that they do. But then if you go to chapter 2, Paul turns on them. And he says, hey, you Jews, you Jews are without excuse because you are a bunch of hypocrites. You are selfish. You are stubborn. You're unloving. You're hard-hearted. You are just as sinful and you are just as lost without Jesus as those Gentiles. And then in chapter 3, he goes on to say, in fact, there's no one righteous. No, not one. Not one. And just when you feel totally helpless, Paul turns the corner down around verse 20, down verse 21. He says, but now... And he goes on to to tell tell us how much God loves the world and loves all of us and what he's done to save us and how we can all be made right with God through faith in Jesus. In fact, he says in Romans 3.23 and following, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. He talks about the Gentiles in chapter 1, talks about the Jews in chapter 2, Consigns us all to hell. We're all lost apart from Christ. And then the good news is in chapter 3, he says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This is the gospel right here. This is the good news. Even though we are sinners, we can all be made right with God through faith in Jesus. So I ask you right here, right now, do you realize how utterly sinful you are? Do you realize how utterly lost you are apart from Jesus? Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I have no hope. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for Christ. Remember when Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was not saying that some people are righteous, so they don't need Him, and other people, well, you know, they have their troubles, so they need, they need Him. They, they, like a doctor, some people need a doctor. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there are some people who think they don't need him. And they really do. And so, But they don't think they need him, so they don't come to him. And he compares it to, to, to going to a doctor. See, as long as you are self-righteous, you will never come to Christ for the true righteousness that he can give you. You only go to a doctor, right, when you think you're sick. And you think, well, there's nothing I can do for myself. i got to go to a doctor who can help me. In the same way, you will never come to Christ until you realize how sick you are and how lost you are and how messed up you are. That's when you finally come to Jesus. So come to Jesus. Have you come to Jesus? Have you? I'm not talking about playing a religious game. I'm not talking about just coming to church and trying to be a better person. I'm I'm talking about coming to that point in your life where you realize that you were lost. There's no hope apart from Jesus. And you need his cure. You need his forgiveness. You need a relationship with him. Receive that invitation, would you? Put your life in his hands and trust him. That's what faith is. Putting your life in his hands. So this whole section is about the gospel of God. So let's move on to the next question. Why does Paul talk about the wrath of God? If this is all about the gospel of God, why does Paul start off in in verse 18 talking about the wrath of God? Well, first of all, it's important to realize what, what God's anger, God's wrath is not. God's wrath is not like our typical human anger. God does not just fly off, fly off the handle, lose his temper. God is never malicious or spiteful or vindictive. You and I, oftentimes we get angry and we can get spiteful and do things that we later regret because we're out of control. That's not what it means by God being angry. God's wrath is his holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone wrongdoing. And aren't you glad for that? I think you would agree with me. I I would have trouble. I don't think I could worship a God who is neutral and even nonchalant about evil or about wickedness. Would you really want a God like that? God is so good and beautiful and holy that he gets angry about the sinfulness and the wickedness and the wrongdoing that goes on. Now, when we think of God's wrath, we usually think of thunderbolts from heaven. You know, we're, oh man, don't do this. God's going to, he's going he's gonna to clap a, a, some lightning all over you. That's what we think about God's wrath. No, look, look how Paul puts it here. He, he describes God's anger in this whole section as something that goes along quietly and almost invisibly, yet with devastating results. Notice three times God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lust. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. It's like God is saying, okay, you don't want me in your life. You don't want to align your life with me and and my created order. Go ahead. I, I, I give you over to your own desires. And the result is chaos and meaninglessness and brokenness. Which leads us to the next question. Well, why use homosexuality as an illustration? Is it because homosexual behavior is the worst sin Paul can think of? Not at all. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to show that the Jewish legalist who tries to establish his own righteousness by, by just following all the rules is really just as bad as the person who practices homosexuality. So then why use homosexuality as an illustration? It's because homosexuality shows more visibly what happens to us when we reject God and try to define life for ourselves. Notice what Paul says, verses 26 and 27. Even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. He's saying homosexuality is not natural. It's not part of the created design, part of the created order. Just look at the bodies of a man and a woman. It's biology. It's nature. Homosexuality turns the created order upside down. So, so listen, and, and listen very carefully here what I'm saying. This push... That we're seeing in our society today this push that celebrates homosexuality this push that celebrates transgender this push that even is now saying there is no such thing as gender or that it's fluid or that there's at least 72 different kinds of gender like they had on Facebook for a while what what's going on here if you look at it through scriptural lenses you can't help come but come to the conclusion that this is a spiritual battle. It's a rebellion against God's created order. Where we are trying to tear down God's created order, God's created design. See sin is never satisfied. We we when we rebel against God and we get hardened in that, we're looking for the next way to rebel against God. And so sin is always advancing and we want to tear down the image of God within us. We want to tear down the God's created order about gender and sexuality. We don't want rules. We don't want, we don't want the order. We want to be free and do our own thing. And so, so what's going on here, we're shaking our little dust fists in God's face, and we're saying, no, I will be my own God. I will decide what's good and right for me. So I exchange you for me. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we even exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And then call that natural as well. This is what we're seeing today. A passionate push to tear down God's created order. Now let's wrestle with some common questions. Number one, isn't the Bible talking about abusive homosexuality? And not same-sex relationships. Books have been written on this. And, and many Christians have already accepted this line of thought. You know, there are certain Christians and certain even denominations that have taken this line of thinking. And they're even affirming gay marriage and even have gay pastors. It, 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 the, the thought is what Paul says here is about abusive relationships, such as pederasty. Pederasty is common back then, where, where men would have sexual relationships with boys. I mean, it's really an incredible when, when you start researching how the Greeks especially, and it kind of affected the Romans too, how they lived, where a man would have a wife for, you know, have a family, but then he would also have some prostitutes and other relationships. And, and he, it was very common for a man to have a teenage lover boy. and uh, and 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 it's just unbelievable. And so anyway, they say that this is what Paul is addressing. And and Paul is not addressing about same-sex, faithful, monogamous relationships. Well, okay, think about that. Then why does Paul mention women with women? Because when you look at the research, there's no evidence of abusive women homosexuality back then. That was a guy thing. (laughs) not a woman thing. And it seems to be consensual here. And again, Paul and Jesus... You, you go back to, it, it, just not. don't just argue about a particular specific passage or a particular word. Go back to the biblical worldview where Jesus and Paul both talk about God's created order, male and female. Talks, Paul talks about nature here and what's natural. And some say, well, it's not natural for some. So if you participate in homosexuality, it's not natural to you. Then it's it. No, no, no. Paul isn't talking about what's natural to you. Because if you have same-sex attraction, it feels natural to you. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about nature. He's talking about the created order, the the created design. A second question, but aren't you born gay? Aren't some people just born with same-sex attraction, and isn't this natural for them? This is the old nature versus nurture question. Some say it's nature. Hey, you're just born this way, and you can't help it. It's just the way you are. Some are saying it's more nurture. It's how you were raised. It's what happened to you. And the best evidence, as far as I can tell so far, is suggest that it's a combination of both, really. And what is clear, though, for most gay people, is that their same-sex orientation is not a choice. It's not like they woke up one morning and said, hey, I think I'll become gay today. No. No. Most of them will tell you, I didn't choose this. In fact, I would love to to choose to be a heterosexual, but this is my this is my my attraction. This is who I really am, and 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 I respect that. I've read several books by gay men and women who are now followers of Jesus. Wesley Hill is a Christian professor at a college. He grew up in a church. He committed. Uh, he's a committed Christian, and he tells his story. I encourage you to get his book. Wesley Hill, I believe it's called Washed and Waiting. And he's a Christian man, solid Christian professor today. But he tells his story, how he grew up in church. And and when he became a, a young teen, he was shocked to discover that when all of his buddies were uh, you know, attracted to other girls, he found himself being attracted to other boys. And he didn't know what to do with those feelings. And he didn't want those feelings, but they were just there. And he didn't trust his family. He didn't trust his church enough to confide in anybody. He was ashamed. And he lived so isolated. And now finally, as an adult, he came out in the sense that he told people that he had same-sex attraction. But he does not act on that same-sex attraction out of his devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ. Which leads to another question. Can you be gay and Christian? We have to be careful here. That's why I say this topic is so hard because it's so easy to say it in maybe the wrong way or hear it in the wrong way and then make implications from there and get it all wrong. We have to be careful here. We have to be precise. On the one hand, of course, you can be gay and a Christian like Wesley Hill. You may have same-sex attraction. You may be tempted to fulfill that desire, but you do not act on it out of faithfulness to Jesus. There are many people who have same-sex attraction and who refuse to live a gay lifestyle because they love Jesus. On the other hand, can you live out a gay lifestyle and be practicing homosexuality and claim to be a follower of Jesus? Obviously, many do. Several denominations I just mentioned have have ordained gay pastors and performed gay weddings. But listen to what Paul says. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters So what does Paul say here about homosexuality? You know that phrase, men who have sex with men? The same thing he says about other people who are sexually immoral in other ways, or idolaters, or adulterers, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or slanders, or swindlers. So He says the same thing about homosexuality that he says about all those other things. Now, hey, let's be honest here. We struggle with some of these things, you know, sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, looking at pornography. And in a way, we're all idolaters in that we want to make something more important and valuable in our life than God is. Basically, whenever, and Paul says this in Romans 1, idolatry is the root sin. Because idolatry, you know, we laugh at the ancient people for worshiping these idols. You and I, we have idols. We just don't make little wooden statues and bow down to them maybe, but we have idols. Whatever you consider more valuable, important, to you, than God, that is your idol. And so when you, when you do something and you know it's contrary to God, that, that's your idol. And, and you're following yourself and, you, and you're making yourself your own God. And so it, well, what's he saying here? It, we, maybe we have trouble with with stealing or even just being jealous or greedy. Can anybody really sit here and say, I don't have any problem with greed? Oh, my goodness. How, how often do we, we want to spend more and more on ourselves when we know maybe we should be giving more money to the church or giving more money to the poor? But no, I just, I'd just i rather just spend it on me and accumulate and accumulate. We all wrestle with greed. So what's Paul saying? None of us are going to make it? What's he saying? Hey, what, what he's saying here is if you persist in these and just give yourself over to them, if you're, you if you are unrepentant, then, then you're not going to enter the kingdom of God because it probably shows you're not truly a Christian or, or you know, you're know, you not right with God. And notice verse 11. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So can, can you be gay and practice homosexuality? Well, if you mean continuously and unrepentingly engaging in that behavior, I hear Paul saying, no, you can't. But, it, but if you mean having a same sex orientation, but not acting on that because you're being faithful to Jesus, then yes, you can be gay and a Christian. And, and I, I love how Beckett Cook puts it in his book. I recommend his book to you as well. It's called A Change of Affection by Beckett Cook. Listen to what Beckett says. He says, although I struggle with same-sex attraction, I would not call myself a gay Christian. Being gay is not my identity. My identity is in Christ. He says, I am a follower of Christ who happens to experience same-sex attraction. Other Christians may struggle with all kinds of sins, gossip, greed, anger, pride, and so on. But I seriously doubt that they would identify themselves as a greedy Christian. Or a gossiping Christian, right? So why would I identify as a gay Christian? I love that, don't you? He's right. You find your identity in Christ. I am a child of God. That's my identity in Christ. Now, I may happen to struggle with pride or greed or lust or same-sex attraction, but that's not my identity. My identity is in Christ. I am a child of God, saved by grace. Amen? I love that. We need that. So don't let anything define you except Jesus. But you say, and this is question four, shouldn't I follow my heart and be true to myself? I mean, come on, I have these same-sex attractions. This is the real me. I've got to be true to who I really am. Shouldn't I follow my heart? And the answer, the biblical answer is clearly no. Paul says in Romans 1.21, we have foolish hearts. Our hearts are distorted and darkened and and foolish in all kinds of ways. I have a foolish heart. Oh, my goodness, if you only knew. If I followed my heart, whew, wow. Why would we follow our hearts? Hitler, Hitler followed his heart. Rapists follow their hearts. People follow their hearts all the time, and they commit adultery. Hey, I was just following my heart. People lie and cheat and steal. I was just following my heart. Remember the gospel worldview again. We're created in God's image. And so, yes, there's a lot about us that is good and valuable. But remember, we're created in God's image, but we're also living in a fallen world. And we ourselves are broken and fallen and messed up. We have darkened minds, disordered hearts. So maybe your distortion is same-sex attraction. Maybe your distortion is pride, maybe it's greed, maybe it's lust, but you don't follow your heart. You follow Jesus. And you let him wash your heart and change your heart, which leads to the final question. WWJD, LGBTQ. What would Jesus do? Parents, what do you do if your child comes out? How should we relate to our gay friends and family members? How can we be a congregation that on the one hand speaks truth, but we do it in a way and we behave in a way where we get it relationally right as well? Wow. We're going to grapple with these questions next time. As I wrap it up here, I just want to remind you, Jesus once said, "Teacher." What's the greatest commandment of all? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whenever you get confused on what to do, follow the two greatest commandments. When you really love God, you're going to obey God's commands. When you really love people, you're going to just give them all kinds of grace and compassion. I, I love Billy Graham's famous quote. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love.